There was a group, the Human Progress, uh, which was a project by one of the think tanks in Washington, set out to highlight some of the major advances in humanity. They named what they call 50 Heroes of Progress. Uh, one of them was Johannes Gutenberg, who invented the printing press. Uh, was Jonas Salk, you know, Pasteur, people that invented vaccines. People whose own individual efforts clearly benefited humanity. Human Progress named Malcolm McLean the 17th hero of progress. And in their write-up, they drew a direct line between containerization and world trade and lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. What does it take for an idea to change the world? Maybe it starts with a light bulb moment. A sudden flash of insight. But having an idea and making a success of it are very different things. It's the difference between invention and innovation. In this podcast series, we're looking at the people and stories behind world-changing ideas. Some of them you'll have heard of. Some of them you won't. Sometimes it takes decades of work to create what looks like an overnight success. By telling these stories, we hope to illuminate how innovation really works in practice. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor of The Economist, and this is Game Changers. Take a look around you. Are you listening to this podcast at home, or in the office, or in a car, or on a train? Look at the things that surround you. Clothes, shoes, furniture, electronic devices of various kinds. Where were they made and how did they get to where they are now? It turns out that most of these items, or parts of them, will have travelled by container ship. Since the pandemic began, more people have been buying more things online. We've got used to the idea that you can order something and it just appears at your door, as if by magic. But in reality, of course, there's an amazingly complex system of logistics that makes all this possible. And at the heart of that system is container shipping, which allows goods of all kinds to be moved cheaply around the world. It's something we depend on, but rarely think about. Until, that is, something goes wrong. A massive cargo ship spending a third day stuck in Egypt's Suez Canal, clogging one of the busiest shipping routes in the world. Rescue crews now say it might take weeks to set it free. Today, multiple tugboats failed to dislodge the Ever Given. Officials say strong winds and a sandstorm knocked the ship off course. I think the blockage of the Suez Canal by Ever Given was interesting for a number of different reasons. It suddenly became very clear that, in fact, there were lots of things in our everyday lives that were very dependent on the stuff that was sitting on board that ship, which was going to arrive late. So I think it was a vivid reminder of all the complicated processes that are involved in getting something that you've ordered online from Amazon uh, onto your doorstep. There's actually this huge physical infrastructure that involves these massive ships and ports. Today, the industry is so much more important than it ever has been to the economy, and yet it's receded from public view. So they're not aware of how giant it is. As we speak, there are 17,546 cargo ships, more than 600 feet long, that 
connect to every part of the globe and literally and physically deliver the world's economy. In the case of Ever Given, the ship itself was owned by a ship-owning company in Japan. The ship was being operated by Evergreen, which is a Taiwanese company. It was flagged to Panama, so it was obeying the laws and regulations of Panama. Their management company was German, and it was insured in Britain. And all of its seafarers were Indians. <laughs> it is a veritable transnational sort of diffusion of responsibility, which of course makes it very difficult to then pin accountability to an event that happens like that. The shipping container literally encapsulates how the modern economy works. It's global capitalism in a box. The idea of packing goods of different kinds in standard-sized boxes seems obvious in retrospect. But where did this game-changing idea come from and how did it actually happen? Think of what happens today when you go into what's called a dollar store here in the United States. Mark Levinson is a historian and author of The Box, a biography of the shipping container. Perhaps you're buying a simple plastic bucket. That bucket was probably made halfway around the world. It would not have been imaginable to transport such an inexpensive item a great distance before the container. Trade in manufactured goods tended to be trade in fairly valuable items because it was expensive to move things and it took a long time. An average sized ship in this era carried perhaps 200,000 separate items crossing the Atlantic. The Ionian 3,000 tons, new, clean, fast, top speed 15 knots, is carrying a cargo of steel, explosive, cement, beer, telephone poles, corrugated iron, and aeroplane spares from Malta, Haifa, Cyprus, and Alexandria. When the ship arrived in port, each incoming item had to be handled separately. That took several days. And then each outgoing item had to be loaded separately, and that took several days. So it was quite common that a ship would spend two weeks in port discharging its cargo and then being reloaded before sailing off. Next morning, we begin unloading steel parts in Angolan for the repair shops in the dockyard. Out of the hold and onto the lighters, we unload stores of every kind. The process that you had before was one in which a ship would come in and had cargo kind of crammed into it, and you would have longshoremen running all over it and and unpacking it as best they could. Ryan Avent is a senior economics writer at The Economist. You might also face labour disruptions because of the power of the longshoremen's unions. And then you did have quite a big problem with theft because you didn't have... Uh, cargo stored in these uh, secure sealed containers. And the old joke was that a longshoreman would earn $20 a day and all the scotch he could carry home. Scotch whiskey was one of the most popular exports in the pre-container era because it had a very high ratio of value to volume. So it made sense to transport it internationally. On the other hand, socks were hardly exported at all. It wasn't worth it. So the container really made it practical to have a very different type of trade. The shipping container changed the game because it made loading and unloading ships much quicker, and that made shipping much cheaper. The modern container era started in the United States in 1956. The first decade or so in which container ship really took off, the cost to load and unload a ship fell by more than 90%. In the door-to-door shipping time, 
fell about half. Not bad for an idea as simple as let's just put everything in standard size boxes. I think it's an amazing innovation story because it's not one that required you to collect a lot of research scientists in a laboratory somewhere. It was a very different sort of innovation. It reminds us that there may be things sitting right in front of us, subtle ways of rejigging how we do aspects of our jobs that ends up making an enormous difference. A crucial figure in the history of the shipping container is Malcolm McLean, known as the father of containerization, who died in 2001. My total relationship with Malcolm was over 20 years, and uh, it was particularly close the last decade. John D. McCown is a veteran of the shipping industry who worked closely with McLean. My relationship grew as, as we worked closer together and ended up being one that was daily contact, daily meetings or, or talking uh, for some 15 years. He, he was a Southern gentleman. I think if you had sat next to Malcolm at a dinner party, your takeaway would have been what an unusually nice and, and polite and interesting man he was. An industry colleague, after he died, uh, referred to him as a gentle giant. And I think that's a very, very apropos view. Malcolm always had a, a yellow pad by his side, and he was constantly doing his own math and rechecking his numbers, and he was driven by the focus on cost. Even when he was growing up, McLean had a keen eye for a money-spinning scheme. He was born in a small town in North Carolina, uh, exhibited entrepreneurial tendencies from an early age. I think his first job was as an 11-year-old with a a shoebox that he'd walk around town shining people's shoes for a nickel. That led to his working and then running a gas station at a young age, 15 or 16. Malcolm determined uh, when he was running his gas station that if he bought a monkey and had it attached to the pump, that would attract attention, particularly with the children. So he would leash the monkey to the pump during the day, and at night he'd put the monkey in the gas station office. And so somebody would come and they would uh, get gas, and the children want mommy or daddy to go back where they have the monkey. And sure enough, uh, his his gas sales uh, shot through the roof. And then he left the gas station business and went exclusively into trucking. McLean Trucking grew into actually the second largest uh, trucking company in the country. And that's where you first saw this incredible focus on, on cost. But in the 1940s, McLean's trucking business faced a growing problem. Mark Levinson again. After World War II, there was an enormous growth in automobiles in the United States. You're looking at the latest version of America's most talked about car. Ford has shaped the classic Thunderbird profile into a completely fresh, completely distinctive style all its own. Many people were able to buy cars for the first time. And then, of course, there were enormous traffic jams. And so Malcolm McLean was concerned that it was more and more difficult to run his lorries on time. He made his money in the trucking industry by being more efficient than his competitors. And he was concerned, frankly, that his company was becoming less efficient because of all this congestion on the roads. He started looking at putting trucks on ships to go up and down the East Coast to get around this congestion. McLean later said that this idea had first come to him in 1937, when he watched a ship being loaded in New Jersey. John D. McCown again. 
Malcolm had never really visited a marine terminal at the time, so he was anxious to kind of see what happened there. And so he drove and he got up to Hoboken and he joined a, a long line of trucks waiting to have their own cargo loaded and put on ships. And Malcolm literally had hours uh, to see what was going on and he observed one after another cargo and freight unloaded and manhandled out of the van and put in cargo nets and hoisted on the vessel. And it just struck Malcolm that there was a whole bunch of activity and labor and steps that didn't seem to be fully necessary. And he found himself thinking, wouldn't it be nice if there was some sort of system where the entire van itself, with the cargo already loaded into it, could be placed on the vessel? But moving entire trucks on and off ships would be inefficient. Over time, in his own thinking, this idea developed that perhaps you should just take the container part off of the trailer, leave the wheels at the dock, put the container on board the ship. And that was an idea that kind of stuck in the back of his head. That was the light bulb moment. I mean, I know that's how it happened, what he saw on the dock. I think that's 100% totally true. And so, in that light bulb moment, the idea of standardised containers, which could be moved from trucks to ships and back again, was born. I think that's an invention. Wait, what? I think the so-called eureka moment came when Malcolm McLean was well advanced in age, and people would meet him and they'd say, well, tell me, how did you invent the shipping container? And he would make up some story about how he invented the shipping container. Okay, so maybe he made up the story of the Eureka moment later to explain how, many years earlier, he invented the shipping container. But we know that he didn't invent the shipping container. What? There's a bit of a misguided conversation about the invention of the shipping container. The shipping container wasn't really invented. Okay, the shipping container is a pretty obvious idea. If you've got a lot of little packages and you're trying to move them, maybe it's easier to put them all together into one big package and move it. And this sort of thing had been going on for 200 years. It was really in the, the 1700s that this kind of technology was introduced on, for example, some canal boats in the UK where you could lift off a piece of the boat and all of the freight that was inside it. So this was not some light bulb that went off in Malcolm McLean's head saying, oh, maybe we should have a shipping container. So what exactly was Malcolm McLean's contribution? What he invented was an entire new system for handling freight. What was important here in the development of containerization was creating an entire system that revolved around a container. And this meant that there had to be a standard container. It turns out that the idea of moving stuff around in boxes had been around for a while, centuries in fact. The tricky part was standardisation, getting everyone to use the same kind of box. There's a coordination challenge in the freight transport industry. You've got a lot of different players. You've got the ship lines, you've got the railways, you've got the road hauliers, you've got the ports. All of those people have some say-so, and it proved very difficult to come up with a format that everyone accepted. And what was good for one wasn't necessarily good for another. Let me give you an example. From the earliest days of containerization, ship owners thought that it would make sense to stack containers. 
And so they wanted containers that had internal supports so that if you stacked a second container above the first one, the first one wouldn't be crushed. Well, for road hauliers, that doesn't make any difference. They're typically hauling one container. They're not typically hauling another container stacked above it. And so they're not necessarily willing to pay extra for a container that has internal supports because they don't need it for their business. So those were the sorts of issues that really needed to be sorted out in the standardization process. Individually, these sound really trivial, but these were dollars and cents issues to all of the participants in the industry. It was in everyone's interest to have a single standard, but nobody could agree what it should be. And it was Malcolm McLean who broke the logjam. So what did he do? He bought a leftover tanker from World War II, put a false deck on top of the deck of the tanker, and sailed containers from Newark, New Jersey to Houston, and arranged ground transport on the way. So when this ship arrived in Houston, there were trucks there to take the containers off to their destinations and began selling basically an integrated freight package. This sounds very routine today, and this sort of thing was quite revolutionary in the 1950s. And so this was a startling departure. Previously, customers would buy trucking from one company and shipping from another. McLean had the idea of selling a door-to-door service. That way, he'd control both the trucks and the ships, and he could ensure that they used the same kind of container. That first voyage was in April 1956, and it involved 58 containers that were transported from Newark to Houston, Texas. And the rest is history? Not quite. Other people had had the same idea at around the same time. McLean was not the only innovator in this area. There was, for example, a ship line on the U.S. Pacific coast called Matson Line. So Matson did its own 24-foot container. There were other companies that slowly got into the business with 17-foot containers, for example. There was a, a company called Grace Line that wanted to sail to Venezuela. Venezuela has a lot of mountain roads from the coast, and it was concerned that a long container might not make it up the mountain. So they said, let's try a short container. Although a few companies had started using standardized boxes on their own routes, there were still multiple rival standards. But then the US government put its foot down. And then the US Navy stepped in. The US government financed many of these US ships that carried containers, and the Navy had the right to take them over in the event of war. And the Navy said, so what are we going to do if we need these ships And some of them can only carry 35-foot containers, and some can only carry 17-foot containers. How can we run a war like that? The Navy basically gave the industry an ultimatum. We want a standard. We want one size container. You pick it, but we expect all containers to be a standard size. But it wasn't the size of the container that turned out to be the sticking point. The key decision turned out to be how to lift a container. If you go out and look at a container today, you can see one on on the road. At each corner of the container, there is a steel cube with holes in it. That's called a corner fitting. And the corner fitting is made so that a crane can lift it from the top. Initially, each company that used containers had its own corner fitting, and they were patented. And so a key issue in standardization was 
whose corner fitting should we use? Different companies had their own patented corner fittings. They all hoped that their design would become the standard because then everyone else would have to license their patents. The result was stalemate until... McLean released his patents on a corner fitting. So the corner fitting that McLean's company, Sealand Service, used became the standard for all of the container industry. And, and that can be used today by any container manufacturer without paying a royalty to the patent holder. McLean's calculus was that if he kept control of his patent, he would have a large share of a small industry. And that if he wanted to be involved in a big industry, there needed to be a standard way of lifting containers. And he made the decision that releasing his patent was what it was going to take in order to turn the container shipping industry from a small industry into a big one. And that turns out to be Malcolm McLean's vital contribution. By giving up his patents, McLean cut the Gordian knot and resolved the arguments about standardisation. The economist's Ryan Avent again. It was a very savvy move on Mr. McLean's part to say, look, it's more important that we get the standard set than that this particular one or that particular one triumph. Where you're able to set a standard, you can unlock all sorts of gains because suddenly people are able to compete on a standard platform and develop a lot of different you know, applications that all use that standard. And there's a huge amount of value that can be unlocked because of that. This is what economists call network effects, where the more people who use the same product or technology or standard, the more valuable the whole system becomes. McLean's decision paved the way for a money-saving technique used by a few innovative shipping companies to be adopted as a global standard. John D. McCown. Malcolm was never one to stop from taking a step further, even if it obviated or reduced the usefulness of what he already had. You know, Malcolm didn't have any problem competing with himself. Mark Levinson. Container shipping blossomed all over the world. It became an enormous industry. It went international for the first time in 1966. Before there was a standard, there'd been very little investment in container shipping because nobody wanted to be stuck with the wrong ships. So now you can carry containers all over the world. One of the factors that hastened the adoption of shipping containers in the 1960s was America's entry into the Vietnam War. Malcolm McLean had come up with the technology by the late 1950s, but in 1967, the US military decided that the movement of war-making material for Vietnam was going to be much cheaper to achieve if they used containers as modes of transport. Lala Khalili is Professor of International Politics at Queen Mary University of London. She's also the author of Sinews of War and Trade, a book about the relationship between shipping and capitalism. They actually contracted McLean's company to use its containers to transport goods for the soldiers that were fighting in Vietnam. And so by 1968, 69, 40% of the business of Malcolm McLean came from this contract with the Pentagon. This military use of containers had an unexpected impact on global trade. Now, one of the things that was interesting about that, and I think one of the most striking bits of the story, is that, of course, when the ships were carrying these containers across the Pacific to Vietnam, they didn't want to bring empty containers back. That becomes quite an inefficient journey. And so they would make a stop in Japan, which had just started an electronics industry. And so they carried those electronics to the US. And so this decade, 1970s, becomes the beginning of Japan becoming this electronics behemoth and opening up specifically the markets in the US. 
us for its goods. And it was the interwovenness of war and commerce of the military essentially contracting this new technology that allowed for its survival and flourishing. Containerization quickly conquered the world. Between 1966 and 1983, the share of countries with container ports rose from about 1% to nearly 90%, coinciding with a takeoff in global trade. Brian Avent. So if you sort of stand back and kind of look at what's happened with world trade since the introduction of container shipping and sort of the mid-1960s when that process really began, what you see, of course, is an explosion in trade. And in fact, it may have been more important then all the trade agreements sort of hashed out over that period combined, which is kind of a staggering thing to think about. But you know, if you look back over the, the first five years after the containers were adopted, we think we can attribute to containerization a 320% increase in bilateral trade. And then if you extend out over 20 years, you get a 790% increase in bilateral trade, which is enormous and, it, and it's much larger than what economists think can be explained by reduced trade barriers. You know, ultimately what you get is a much more globalized world and you get the emergence of these sprawling global supply chains that stretch across countries. So if the benefits of containerization were so great, why didn't it happen sooner? Part of the reason, says Mark Levinson, is that the shipping industry was very set in its ways. The shipping industry, I'm talking about the maritime industry, was very clubby. People went off to their clubs for lunch every day in in New York and London, the same guys getting together. Their offices were near the docks, and they could actually get down to the docks and see their vessels. They were very engaged in the romance of the maritime industry. And McLean didn't care for any of that stuff. It was this outsider's perspective, says John D. McCown, that enabled McLean to see possibilities that those inside the shipping industry could not. It's a reminder that somebody with a keen mind and strong skills of observation can look at something, and if there are things that don't make sense to them, they should have confidence that they should uh, follow that thread and see what comes out of it. If you don't know much about something, then you don't have the same blinders that people in the industry do. So it's not surprising that much of our innovation comes from people that are taking a fresh look. Ultimately, it was about the bottom line. Customers just wanted to move stuff from A to B as cheaply as possible. Mark Levinson. Unlike almost everybody else in the freight transportation business, McLean understood that what the owners of freight wanted was to get their stuff delivered reliably and cheaply. And so Malcolm McLean took the romance out of shipping. And a lot of people complained about that. There's still people who complain about that. But it really made the modern world possible. And it wasn't just ship owners whose feathers were ruffled by the introduction of containerization. In the pre-container era, ports were located in big cities. And there was a reason for that. Ports needed a lot of workers. So in every major port city, there was a large community of dock workers. These are the people who loaded and unloaded the vessels. You had in the early 1950s, almost 50,000 dock workers in London. You had close to that many in New York City. Lale Kalili. 
Malcolm McLean himself mentioned that part of the reason that he wanted the container to be invented was in order to reduce the power and expense of longshoremen involved in unloading bulk goods. So longshoremen in the US were very, very powerful up until about the 1950s or 60s, and it was essentially becoming a fully mechanized system. It broke the back of organized labor. Nal Lilly has first-hand knowledge of the industry, having spent time on board a container ship when she was researching her book, Sinews of War and Trade. The ship that I steamed on in 2015 was at the time the largest ship, and it was, I think, 390 metres long, so about 10 metres shorter than ever given, which is the largest today. But this ship had only about, what, 30 people working on it? And so you, what you're struck by is that you're essentially in what is a very large city, but with only 30 other people. So there could be days where you saw nobody. Behind the scenes of the global economy keeping the whole show running are the crews of container ships, who work in extraordinarily difficult conditions. One of the things that was really striking about it is the way that the workers on board these ships are functioning. You end up having working conditions that are already difficult because they require people to be away from their families anywhere between four to nine months often, sometimes 11 months. It's also an incredibly physically demanding job. Whether you're an officer or you are trying to scrape rust off the side of the ship or you're working in the engine room, which is like the bowels of hell because it's so hot, it's very repetitive, it's extremely backbreaking and it is incredibly intense. The International Transport Workers Federation commissioned a study which showed that more seafarers committed suicide than in any other occupation. So it is an occupation that is prone to suicide more than any other. And yet, precisely because this enormous workforce is largely invisible to the public. Not much attention is paid to it. And on the one hand, I recognize that it is central to the ways in which I live. At the same time, I also acknowledge that the cheapness, the availability, the accessibility of all these goods is predicated on the exploitation of these folks and also on the fact that these ships have acted as a kind of instrument of wage arbitrage. The container has created winners and losers, not just in the shipping industry, but by reshaping the entire global economy. There has been a concentration of manufacturing in East Asia and Southeast Asia over the course of the last three to four decades, um, and in particular in China. And because China has become this factory, the shipping industry is really responsible for the import of primary materials into China and for the export of value-added goods and produced products out of China. One of the interesting bits that people mention is that it's actually cheaper to catch fish in the waters of Scotland, ship it to China, have it filleted and then sent back than it is to do that work. And of course, what that means is that people are put out of work in one location while there's employment in another location. And you also, of course, have whatever the environmental costs are of transporting something all the way across the world only for it to be transported back. These extraordinary technologies, these amazing and aesthetically mind-blowing objects of human engineering and imagination are also kind of a double-edged sword, which also exacerbate global inequalities. But Mark Levinson argues that the negative impacts of globalisation need to be weighed against the positive ones. Containers have been blamed for any number of things. There's a school of thought which still blames containers for all of the dock workers who lost their employment in the 1960s because containerization took away the need for so many workers on the docks. Economic change always hurts people. 
always, every kind of economic change leaves some people behind. Certainly a garment worker in Bangladesh earns much less money than a garment worker in France. There's no doubt about that. Yes, some of the people in those countries have difficult jobs or unpleasant jobs. There's no doubt about that. But it's, the container has helped create economic opportunities for many people. So for the world economy as a whole, it's been extremely beneficial. Perhaps not surprisingly for someone who works in shipping, John D. McCown also emphasises the benefits of greater trade. It's irrefutable that the value created by containerization is exponentially more than the problems uh, it has caused. Trade and containerization has literally lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. This is, of course, a subject very close to our hearts at The Economist. Ryan Avent. At The Economist, we've been advocates for free trade from the very beginning, from 1843. If you are able to increase the size of the market, then you're able to have greater specialization and trade. And it's about expanding the size of the market and in that way, unlocking all sorts of economic benefits. And we see those benefits in terms of a much broader range of products that we're able to buy now. We see it in terms of lower costs. We see it in terms of, of higher wages in many cases, not in every case, but in many cases. And so if you go back to the 1990s or the 1980s, you had you know nearly 2 billion people living in extreme poverty, most of them in, in South and East Asia. Then you have this explosive growth in global trade. You have more and more people being able to participate in the global economy. And the result has been a huge reduction in global poverty, a huge increase in incomes in China and in Vietnam, in India and Bangladesh. But it's important to recognise that not everyone has benefited from the growth in global trade. It's certainly the case that globalization has has not just generated losers, but has also led to there being places where there's sort of a sustained shortfall in good jobs, permanently depressed economies. Increased trade because of containerization, you know, subjected manufacturing areas in sort of the Midwest and the Southeast of the United States, for example, to competitive pressure from companies in China and elsewhere in South and East Asia. And because of that, a lot of factory workers lost jobs. And that's obviously something that's had a long run impact on not just the American economy, but also its politics and, and things of that nature. I don't think that means that trade is bad per se. I think what it says is that trade generates gains that are more than the cost, but that if we're being responsible stewards of our economies, we're trying to find some way to make sure that there's redistribution and that there are new opportunities being created for people who lose out because of this. So there you have it. The shipping container is the workhorse of globalisation. It's changed the world in all sorts of ways that you might not have realised, from the rise of China to the plunging price of consumer electronics. The story of the shipping container shows that getting even a seemingly obvious idea off the ground can be surprisingly complicated, particularly when it requires coordination and cooperation between large groups of people. It highlights the value of standardisation and the power of network effects. And it's yet another reminder that despite the appeal of neat stories about inventors having eureka moments, innovation is, in reality, a much more complex and arduous process. Mark Levinson again. In writing about innovation, I'm fascinated by this particular topic. I refer to it as the Isaac Newton theory of innovation you get the notion that somehow an innovator is sitting around under a tree and suddenly an apple drops on his or her head. And eureka, yes. That's not the way innovation works. 
There had been a lot of research on containers during World War II and after World War II by the different militaries. There had been boxes of different sizes tried out. There had been railroad companies that used containers in different ways. So the idea was old. The thing was that none of those attempts to use containers had been profitable. None of them were financially viable. And it was really McLean who saw a way to make this a practical business. The shipping container is an example of an idea that started in the rich world before spreading its benefits to the developing world. In the next episode of Game Changers, we'll consider an innovation that moved in the opposite direction, one that first took hold in the developing world and only later spread to rich countries. The ability to pay for things using your mobile phone. Ten years ago, you could pay a cab driver using your phone in Nairobi, but you couldn't do it in New York. Why not? You can hear the full story on the next episode of Game Changers. Thanks for listening to this episode. It was a Tempo and Talker production for The Economist. The producer was Tom Pooley, and the executive producer was Sandra Schmueli. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist. Thank you.